News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. It's another great week in New York City, and I'm here with my co-host, Katie Honan. Hi, Katie Honan. Hey, Chrissy. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Harry Siegel may be joining us in a little bit, but until then, let's get started. We have so much to talk about in this banana city. So, Katie, I wanted to get your opinion on things, first things first, with our dear friend, Eric Adams. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of conversation lately about his relationship with the press. Mm-hmm. And of course, it made me think about Bill de Blasio's relationship with the press, which was pretty notoriously antagonistic. Uh-huh. Um, you and I are team on time, if not early. Yeah. Uh, and part of that <laughs> tension between the mayor and the press corps was that he would have you all waiting in a holding cell <laughs> for hours, hours on end, yeah. even during COVID, which, you know, there's like, I find people being late as like a level of disrespect. Like yeah, you, you're not respecting my time, but you don't respect your own time. And I get it. You're the mayor, but like have a Why team my around hair you. Gray. Right. It's like, but have a team around you where it's like, hey, it's time to wrap it up. Right. Um, but now let's fast forward to the 110th mayor. We've got Eric Adams, who obviously is a big personality. And there are a lot of conversations coming out now about, wow, he doesn't really get along with the press. He thinks that you all are out to get him. There's, I don't know if it's paranoia or what. Um, but do we care about this narrative? Because I just feel like everyone has a job to do. The mayor should be doing his job and you all sort of will figure out whether he's doing a good job or not. And you all have a responsibility. It reminds me of sort of like... Um, when you watch those reality shows where people are like, I'm not here to make friends. It's like, that is not your job to become friends with Eric Adams. Like, you are a journalist. So you didn't come here to make friends. You came here to report on the city so that we have a certain level of analysis that we would not have because we don't have, you know, sort of the inner circle references. So where are you with this conversation? Are you bored of it? Is it really legit? Do we need to have this conversation about the mayor and a relationship with the press? Or is it just everyone's got a job to do and let's keep moving forward? Well, I, for one, like thinking of us as like season one survivor, you know, like who's the Richard Hatch of the press court. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think, look, I'm no different as reporters. You know, we tend to be, we're all in a bubble and we um, talk amongst ourselves a lot. And I think a lot of times this conversation gets blown out of proportion because, you know, who are we talking with? We're talking with other people in this bubble. We're talking with other reporters. We're, we're, we're having all these same conversations, um, you know, and I think it's important to know that, um, you know, you want to know what kind of coverage a mayor is getting and how he views it. But at the same time, I also like don't personally care if the mayor likes me or or likes other people or or I understand like if it's to the point where he, and I have seen him react really negatively and unfairly to certain reporters who are asking pretty basic, straightforward questions of him. But yeah, I mean, it's expected. And mm-hmm. um, I will say Mayor Adams is a lot more pleasant to just be around compared to like a Bill de Blasio. Um, Interesting, how so? I mean, basic stuff. He like says hello mm. when you say hi. <laughs> you know, mm. I work mostly that at bar. Home. That bar is low. <laughs> exactly. It's it's a very low bar. You know, Mayor de Blasio, especially towards the end, just wasn't as, I think in, in the first months and years of his administration, he was friendlier. I wasn't covering him um, really at that point. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I thought of it because the mayor was on New York One this morning and it came up. Pat Kiernan asked him and, and he was talking about it. And I'm thinking, does the regular New Yorker watching New York One this morning really care if he likes, mm-hmm. you know, if he likes 
Michael Gartland of the Daily News or me or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it just gets probably discussed more than anything else. What the mayor did talk about with Pat Kiernan, which I found interesting, and we talked about it on last week's podcast, was the New York One Siena College poll and the yeah. sort of uh, debate, as we discussed, about is fair good or is it bad? And maybe fair is just fair. But, you know, these are the things where... Like, you know, there's a lot more important things to talk about. And I think as reporters, look, if he likes us, if he doesn't, we still have to cover him as fairly as possible. And if it's sometimes negative, if we're pointing out flaws, you know, which like in his housing plan, which we can talk about later, all these things, that's our job, you know. Well, I'm glad you brought up the housing plan because I wanted to sort of zoom out 30,000 feet a little bit to the budget. Um, I saw that, you know, many of the progressive city council members did not vote in favor of it or they were just very vocal that they were displeased that it seems as though yet again, there's a lot of money put into policing, um, but there's a lot of money that was taken away from various um, social service safety net projects and education and housing. And so can you just give us a quick overview of what the budget is and and where we're going to yeah. go in the next few months? I mean, Eric Adams seemed pretty excited about said budget, but I think... You know, my frustration is always we cannot <coughs> keep giving money to police <laughs> and getting the same results. It's like I've always been an advocate for if we really build up the social safety net, if we invest in education, if we invest in housing, if we invest in, you know, community services, even transportation, which isn't really his his value with. But if we do all of those things, then crime actually can be managed because you have children who have someplace to go and they have stability and we don't have to keep paying for police officers on like the tail end. And when he campaigned, he used that uh, Desmond Tutu quote about, you know, we're too busy trying to pull people out of the water who are drowning and we're not going to the top of the mountain to figure out why it is they keep falling in the water. And so I think all this money for policing is still... It's part of the like we're pulling out drowning folks as opposed to investing in making sure yeah, people I mean, don't fall uh, in the water. So in the, the, place. the council uh, voted and agreed upon the budget late Monday. What's unclear to me still is why they did it. So it's it's early, right? It, why they had to do it? Right? Yeah. Why they had, ten days early? Why right? They had to do it Monday night? Like what's the rush? I, I went to sleep, so I didn't really I didn't stay up for it. Why they couldn't do that Tuesday morning? Um, it's a $101 billion budget. And, and I think the biggest issue is the cuts to the Department of Education, which the city pegs to declining enrollment and, and some of the federal money they got because of COVID drying up. But, um, you know, that's a concern for a lot of people. And there were calls to delay the budget vote, to maybe renegotiate things. Um, the mayor did get, he took an L on, he wanted six hundred around 600 more correction officers. Um these were the issues that were at hand. And like you said, you know, I think what the line that they say, the council saying is that the NYPD's budget is flat, but as we know, the NYPD's budget due to overtime and other kind of things fluctuates throughout the year. Um, so mm-hmm. we've never really even seen, despite all of the excitement, I guess, and, and all of the discussion about it in 2020, if we, if we want to go back in time to 2020 and not very, very fraught budget discussion, there's never really been a cut to the NYPD in the budget. Um, which I think a lot of people say we could redirect some of that money. Mm-hmm. Another issue, it may seem smaller, but the mayor as a candidate agreed to do, to commit 1% of the budget to the Parks Department. He did not reach that goal. Um, so you think of some of these, the role parks play in in, in the city and and what mm-hmm. people want. And, and you mentioned it briefly. Uh, I don't know if 
this re- retaliation of some of the more progressive mem- council members who voted against the budget. Um, they say that they did not receive um, additional discretionary funds in the budget, sort of like as a, which we hear every year, but. I was about to say, didn't we sort of talk about this with Corey Johnson when he yeah. was um, speaker, right? Where there were certain members who felt that when they didn't go along to get along, they were uh, punished with their allocations or lack thereof of money for their particular districts. And and that just seems like a strategic tool, I guess, that the yeah. speaker has and the to other, keep people um, in line. The other thing that I think Patch actually uh, wrote a really excellent story on Tuesday, because um, a lot of times these budget talks are, I find them to be very wonky, but it was about a Boys and Girls Club in Astoria. Mm-hmm. Councilwoman Tiffany Caban is their council member. She was a progressive member who voted against it. So they will not, they say that they, because of this cut, they will not receive necessary funding. So I always like to look at the real world implications of, you could say, okay, the speaker's retaliating mm-hmm. against people who won't vote for the budget, but here's actually kids in Astoria not getting what they want. And I know in years right. past, I mean, when the speakers have done this, they've then allocated the money on their own. There's always ways to kind of finagle it and, and get the funding. But that's sort of the story. You know, there's still a lot to look through with the budget documents and figuring out what's going on. But we had higher taxes. So the budget, it's not the same doom and gloom budget that we kind of thought we'd see in 2020. Um more money in the rainy day fund. Mm-hmm. There were also a lot of, um, you know, looking at the affordable housing crisis in New York City and the story for a lot of people is I cannot afford to live in New York City and the rent is too high. Just the amount of money right. given to facilitate the creation of affordable housing, which I guess then could lead into our next discussion. The mayor's also the mayor's other announcement this week, his much sought after housing plan, which is sort of lacking in a lot of the important details and the numbers that I I think a lot of people were looking for in terms of what he's actually committing to build. Right. I think, you know, I, by no means am I an affordable housing expert. I think what really worries me about this city is that when you talk to say middle-class folks, people who have a steady job and a steady income Mm -hmm. and they're feeling a pinch I always think about what about working class New Yorkers and, and the millions of New Yorkers who are literally living paycheck to paycheck. This, however we calculate affordable housing is off. Yeah, Whatever we're doing is not working. And so even when we say affordable housing, I'm always just like, affordable for whom? You know, I'm a fan of the word whom. Um, because I, I fear that, you know, there will be some New Yorkers who will have to leave, not just because of the, the price of housing, but all the things that surround it as well. And so, no, Eric Adams did not create this problem, but he did say during the campaign promises that he would actually come up with a resolution. And it doesn't seem as though this budget or or anything that he's discussed uh, in the past few weeks is coming close to resolving this crisis. Yeah. And he revealed, uh, revealed, unveiled, (laughs) maybe revealed, unveiled, his housing plan yesterday and and got a lot of criticism because people don't know it's what is the goal, right? And he was saying, I'm not focused on what we're going to build. I'm focused on how many people are moving from the street and from shelter into homes. Um, And I think that's his metric, you know, and he also looking at what he's done in his first six and a half months in office, one of the most controversial things he's done is the homeless encampment clearings and Mm -hmm. seeing how many homeless homeless encampments were being destroyed and then how many people were ultimately going into shelter. I mean, it's such a large gap. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very few people compared to the number of um, encampments getting cleared, very few people were going into shelter. So the question is, 
where are people going? If they don't want to be in a shelter, what are the options? And most people from the reporting that I've seen from people going out and actually speaking to the people in encampments, it's, we just want a house. We, we want a home. We want a place to live that's affordable. And that's the issue. So I think obviously there's going to be a lot more on what gets built and, and how people can afford to, to live in the city. Well, I think what's really deep, though, is like if we're going to be honest about the conversation, we also need to be honest about, you know, the NIMBY issue, where yeah. I think a lot of people saw what was happening to the homeless encampments and thought it was egregious and brutal and cruel. Yet and still, when you ask a lot of New Yorkers, well, you know, do you want a hotel in your community? That's when folks are like, well, I mean, you know, there's an element that they yeah. they seem a little skittish about. And so... I don't envy the role of any mayor, but how do we balance sort of making sure people have dignity and a home and then other sort of working class and middle class New Yorkers are like, well, I mean, if I'm paying all this money, like, I don't understand why people should get like subsidized and free housing if I'm not. So there's this tension that we have to figure out, like, what do we do for sort of the New Yorkers who are most in need where when the rubber hits the road, there are a lot of New Yorkers who actually don't care when it comes to practice. They care in theory, but they don't care in practice. Yeah, and I think a lot of, I, I, not so much anymore, but I used to cover a lot of opposition to homeless shelters. Mm-hmm. The one I think of in particular is the Pan Am Hotel in Elmhurst. It was very, this was years ago now, but it was very, very contentious. And it was mainly immigrant homeowners who were opposed to the homeless shelter. And I think what I saw from that, right, when you try to look at the compassion on both sides, right, it's, everyone's on like feeling they're a paycheck away mm-hmm. or they're one bad accident away from losing everything. And I think sometimes it's difficult to have empathy and compassion when you yourself are so are stretched so thin and you're looking, it, it really like breeds resentment. You know, New York city is a very, very difficult city to live in. And I think I always say this, you know, that whole New Yorkers are tough. It's like, well, we're tough because we have to be, and maybe right. it's a shame we're this tough right? because it's a survival mode. So when you have a city of eight, and a half, however million people in survival mode, it it creates difficult. And maybe that's being too compassionate to, to NIMBYs, but it's just trying to figure out people's mindsets. You know, I, I think that that's, I think if we're going to solve it, we have to sort of look at it from all angles. Like it's like a Rochamon type thing. I mean, there mm-hmm. is this element. I've heard you say that and write about it before. I mean, New Yorkers have these calluses, but it's like, well, I prefer to have soft hands. <laughs> like I yeah. prefer all of New Yorkers to have a softer life. And I do think that COVID has definitely exposed the extent to which a lot of New Yorkers, you know, obviously there's always that 1% that's kind of immune to any exogenous shocks in yeah, the market. Yeah, fuck them. I don't really care about that. Yeah. No offense. Right. But like, there are a lot of folks where there's an air of tension because everyone is on edge. They know that they're one hospital visit away from losing everything, whether it's their home or their apartment. They know they're one bad landlord away from trying to figure out, can they stay in New York or do they go to a tier two city? So I think it's so interesting, you know, the the way we're trying to look at both sides of, say, the, the homelessness solution crisis, however we want to frame it. I think that's the way I I constantly try and look at the role of the mayor in New York City, who's trying to balance all the elections aside, a mayor who's trying to balance, like he is technically supposed to represent all eight and a half million of us. So it's like Mm -hmm. the homeowners and the unhoused equally uh, Mm -hmm. and how that really shakes out. Now, okay, so let's, let's zoom broader to New York State. Um, and talk about our good friend Eric Adams and his relationship with Kathy Hochul. Um, 
lately or just the other day, yeah. Eric Adams um, decided to endorse Kathy Hochul for governor of uh, New York. This is after the New York Times endor- endorsed her. Um, is it too late? You know, in the sense that I wrote about sort of the worth of an endorsement. Like if it comes so late, it's like, well, you didn't help me get here. So who cares? Should Eric Adams have endorsed her earlier since they have been working together? It does right now seem as though she's the Democratic Party heir apparent. Um, Or do you think that this is, what is it? It's June 14th or 15th today. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know. Today's the day. And today's the official um, endorsement. I always forget when we, we usually, it'll come out tonight. But yeah, as we speak, there is a rally going on where Eric Adams is endorsing Kathy Hochul. Um, so that is, you know, he spoke about it in New York one. He says he spoke to Jamani Williams this weekend. Jamani understands. Um, he didn't endorse Tom Swazi. Tom Swazi endorsed him for mayor. You know, I'm not a, a pollster or, or I can't predict the future, but I think Kathy Hochul probably is the best shot in this race. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, this is the right decision. This is for the best. This is the best for New York. It's a good it's a good get for Kathy Hochul and, and especially um, securing more black support around the city and, of course, New York State. And um, and, th- and that's kind of where that is. So, you know, we'll hear more about it and what it matters. And I know there's a lieutenant governor debate this week. Right. So I want to bring in Harry Siegel has joined us. Hi, Harry Siegel. Hello. So I got a quick question for you in, in sticking with the Adams endorsement of Hochul. He endorses her now two weeks before the primary. Does it matter? I mean, as as Katie said, it might help with, obviously, not just downstate, but definitely Black voters. You know, there's still some conversation about Brian Benjamin and now Delgado and, and her selection and maybe some, you know, judgment calls. But does an endorsement two weeks before the primary do anything? Does it move the needle? I mean, when we were watching the debate and we're texting, and it's like, I feel like it's just Chrissy and Harry watching the debate together <laughs> quietly. No one else is, right? So does it even matter? Not much. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> it matters because it would have mattered a lot if he'd chosen not to. So so this is the point where he's not yeah. really offering anything. She's way up in the polls. There's no indication that's going to change uh between now and uh, the end of the month when the primary is um what's one thing that's interesting to me is i, I actually watched this republican debate mm. which was really depressing in my view uh, at one point rob astorino said if you come to new york now if you're lucky you get hit with the bag of poop if not you get shoved in front of the train tracks and then shot in the head and that was the. <laughs> I, mean, I, I laughed. Guys, I, hated, I hated that I laughed, but I did. I, I, I've got I've got a dog and I've got a bag waiting for Rob Astorino now. If you'd like to come into the city, <laughs> the whole debate that was the uh, tenor in terms. It was we have to protect the people of New York from the uh, the people of New York City. It was like a a bidding war to describe how chaotic and dystopian and horrific everything is, and this worries me because. That, that Siena poll we've talked about previously, and by the way, that shows that that a significant majority of New Yorkers supports sweeping the homeless encampments, which helps explain why Adams has been promoting that. You know, he's not really doing anything so different from de Blasio. The difference is de Blasio never talked about it. And Adams went to the New York Times and said, I'm doing this um, and, 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 and sort of put his brand behind it. But that same poll shows, you know, Hochul deep underwater. In New York City, uh, her approval rating, 
uh, you know, I, I'm and what's concerned. the what's the genesis of that, Harry? I mean, so so you know, she 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 was nobody in particular in in, in this really pointless uh, role. And then she was the most powerful person in the state. And the first thing she did was uh, appoint the guy who promptly got arrested as lieutenant governor. who would become governor, of course, if something happened to her. Uh, there was a lot of Cuomo fatigue. And while, while Kathy Hochul is not Andrew Cuomo, happily, and a, a woman, which, which is actually very cool and, and nice and good and overdue, since we've never had a woman as governor before, uh, you know, there, there are all these built up frustrations, um, both from from the right and inside and especially outside of New York City uh, and, and also uh, for, uh, from the left. So so the the this poll and Adam says it actually shows he's, he's pretty popular. If you also count the people who say he's doing a fair job, uh, if you just go with excellent and good, it, it doesn't look good. But uh, the, the excellent and good numbers, like 29 percent, if I recall, is New York City going in the right direction, 32 percent. And the numbers for Hochul and for New York State are about the same. You know, about three in 10 people in New York City think she's doing a real good job. And about three in 10 people think the state's going in the right direction. So there's a ton of pessimism baked in right now. And while these Republicans are, in my view, like like a, a, a group of uh, underqualified clowns, um, and, and, you know, we're not even talking about the Nazi lover upstate who's now running for Congress, who's a former gubernatorial candidate. I'm worried that this will be a more competitive general election than people think. And that's where I could see Eric Adams' endorsement potentially having, having some value as he's really framed himself as a centrist Democrat and someone who supports police reform, but also supports the police and all these parts. Although, of course, the, the, the Republican National Committee just put out a thing talking about Eric Adams and uh, chaos in New York, and he loves it. And cops are retiring left and right, and we're all going to die, especially as a uh, black man and a black mayor, our second black mayor, who's hoping to be the first to win re-election. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how that plays his endorsement outside of New York City, and I am worried we're in for a, a more competitive general election than uh, than has been broadly anticipated, both for the uh, go. Uh, of the office of governor and for the uh, Democrats keeping their super majority in both houses of the uh, legislature. Although we'll see. And, and last thing I'll say is I think a lot of people in New York city are, may not turn out. They're not going to vote mm -hmm. for the Republican, but they, they may register their, their general unhappiness by not, just not showing up. And I think a lot of people outside the city are going to be motivated to show up and register their unhappiness, which is what happened when we had, you know, these very good election reforms on the ballot last year and Democrats assume they just passed naturally because the state is mostly Democratic. It's two to one Democratic majority statewide. And what happened is all, all these angry people showed up and just uh, said, you know, uh, rejected these ballot measures. And uh, all three of those ones went down. Oh, and la last, last thing, guys who are listening, early voting started, which is one of the awesome reforms that the Democratic supermajority did pass here. And is great. So if you're thinking about this race and you want to vote and you don't want to get stuck in a line on election day, although I don't think the lines are going to be so big, right. <laughs> go, go, go find your 18th. early polling station, you know, go online, figure it out in two minutes, head there and just cast a ballot at your convenience. Well, I mean, this is my frustration. I've, I've written about this where oftentimes when it comes to black voters, where it's like, you know, we don't turn out, we get blamed for whatever results happen. 
Um, but I do think that, you know, for having studied Black politics, oftentimes the way Black voters express displeasure or or just, you know, um, it's not even a, a disinterest. It's just a candidate that they are not fully invested in. They're not necessarily going to vote for the Republican. I mean, none of these Republican candidates are legitimate in my mind or, you know, capable of, of running anything an ice cream stand, but God forbid, New York State. But I do think that there are a few things working against Democrats in this race, which is I think it'll be very low turnout in November. Um, I think that because Kathy Hochul isn't necessarily inspiring a lot of voters, Black or otherwise, there are a lot of people who are just like, ah, you know, I may or may not turn out. But if we have low turnout, this is where we could get a possibility of one of those Republican candidates. Because we have to remember, George Pataki was a different type of Republican that was a different type of party back then. But he was a three-term Republican governor. We can't pretend that that didn't happen. We can't pretend that we didn't have five terms of Republican mayors in New York City. I mean, everyone's like, well, Bloomberg wasn't really a Republican. It's like, listen, this man ran on the Republican line and he somehow became mayor of New York City. So we have to remember that like this state is not this hardcore blue that we always invest ourselves in during presidential elections. On non-presidential years, we're starting to see the extent to which the, the purple and the red streaks come through quite strongly. And that's why Andrew Cuomo stayed on the sidelines, right? right. Like Andrew Cuomo is itching to get back in the game. He feels he was unfairly pushed out. I, I disagree strongly, but but putting that aside, look, Cuomo is a very legacy-minded person. Just look at all the posters about Andrew Cuomo and his administration he designed. And he realized that, that, that if he got involved in this race and tried to come back that way, that the odds that he was going to continue his father's legacy of being the three-term or nearly three-term governor who ends up getting a Republican elected statewide it was going to go way, way up. Like, this is a, a, an ominous year. I think, too, you know, Chris, you're watching the debate and, and you're not seeing anyone capable or competent to in the Republican the side, Republican debate. I, yeah, right. The Republican debate. But I think a lot of people across New York City, New York State, mm -hmm. whether or not they are even would consider themselves Republican, they, they don't see a functional government for whatever reason from the part in the Democrats. So they, they look at dysfunction. Right. And it's like, all right, the Democrats are running this. OK, so I don't know. Maybe Rob Astorino can do a better job. Maybe Andrew Giuliani makes some good points. So I think that's where you get people who maybe aren't even registered Republicans saying, all right, we need a change. This hasn't been working from, from my perspective. What else can we do? That, that's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a referendum on the Democrats. As we're recording, I see that uh, Kathy Hochul has accepted Eric Adams' endorsement <laughs> and says, and I quote, we are not. A city and state of losers. We are a city and state of winners. Uh, on my group chat, uh, the person who flagged that notes that, quote, my we are not a state of losers T-shirt is raising a lot of questions. <laughs> well, I mean, here's but here's, you know, if we're sticking with the governor's race and endorsements. Kathy Hochul secured the New York Times endorsement this week. I mean, I don't think anyone's shocked by that. I definitely was not shocked by that news. Um, Katie, Harry. Is there anything in that endorsement? You know, they had some nice words for Swazi, relatively speaking, and some nice words for Jumani. And they essentially said, we just didn't think that Jumani's ideas, you know, were sort of statewide viable and mm. Swazi just wasn't a fit. Um, that Does anyone feel any sort of way about that New York Times endorsement? Or is that just kind of, that's, as Harry, you said, if she didn't get it, it would be catastrophic. Right. She does have it. It's not that big of a deal. 
I, I, I wasn't surprised by it. I, I was happy to see that the Times really kind of gave her the business about Brian Benjamin and mm-hmm. her and, and and whatever kind of vetting did or didn't happen. Um, you know, I think her quote was like, oh, she didn't like look into him. You know, it's like, come on. Like, we're not asking you to be a private investigator, right? Although you should have those on staff when you're vetting people. But a lot of this stuff, like if you're not reading the Daily News and the city, right? Like these are Google them, page one of Google. So that's always the, the larger question, whether it'll matter to voters. Oh, this guy that she was going to run with got arrested. She should have known. Like, I don't know how that resonates, but yeah, I wasn't surprised that she got the endorsement from the Times. Harry? There are so many competent and qualified uh, 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 Black lawmakers from New York City. If that's the sort of person you want, it is stunning to me that she went with somebody who had, you know, this isn't a PI, this is Google. (laughs) All of these big lingering issues that he's subsequently been, been arrested for. And his attorney, Brian Burke, who, by the way, was one of the uh, the attorneys who helped in the last, uh, actually helped run the last Trump impeachment, says uh, th- this is totally unfair. And this is actually how politics should function, which is, politically speaking, in my view, insane. However, legally speaking, I would not be stunned if well past this election cycle, this Benjamin case ends up uh, at the Supreme Court. And I would not be stunned if the same way they took the corrupt as hell governor of Virginia and his corrupt as hell wife who turned on each other in the course of fighting their corruption charges and found, hey, that wasn't corruption. If they find the Brian Benjamin and his giant cardboard check that, that he wrote to this group that he never apparently wrote the actual check to, they say that's not corruption either. And several years from now, Benjamin is actually a pioneer who's setting up the roadmap for legal corruption for those who follow. And just like the unlucky fellow at the start of that trail who who, who got burnt. So, so weirdly, you know, we seem to just be on a path where, where, where everyone is playing these games and trying to figure out how far they can go before a prosecutors get involved and B the, the Supreme court seems to, seems to be in a mood to constantly expand what's, what's allowable in terms of, of what, just from a common sense point of view is, is corruption. And of course, Kathy Hochul has gotten a pretty easy ride in the primary on this so far, mostly because she's up by a jillion points and hasn't really had to engage, but this general is going to be ugly. And I think Katie's point is key. Like no one really cares that much uh, about Lee Zeldin uh, or Andrew Giuliani, one poll that he put out, you know, has in front, I, I strongly doubt it. And by the way, it was at this debate in virtual form like out of an old Frank Miller comic or a bad 1980s science fiction movie. You know, there's three people there in person and one guy who's literally a, a rectangle uh, on a TV screen uh, with the same background. So it looks like he's in, in the room. I, I don't think voters care that much about them. I think this is going to be a referendum on the Democrats, and that's a dangerous position for the Democrats to be in. And what's looking like a wave year nationally that's going to favor uh, uh, Republicans as the out party. Now, I've got a question for both of you, though, because of... Uh, Giuliani in a box uh, because he would not share his vaccination status. Um, He was not able to participate in person. Do you think that there's a a significant segment of the population that actually liked the fact that he wasn't there um, because he's standing his ground when it comes to vaccinations? Significant. I I don't know how to measure that, but yeah, there's plenty of people who, even if they themselves are vaccinated, and I just know this because I've reported on it, 
they themselves are vaccinated, but it becomes this like, I don't know, hands off my body. I thought you guys were my body, my choice. <laughs> you know, it becomes and it, and because it has become so politicized, even though the data is there, the science is there of the overwhelming safety of the vaccine and, you know, the data on how many unvaccinated people have they were dominating the, whatever hospitalizations and all that, you know, people see that as someone is going to stand. Yeah. Like you said, stand his ground, stand tough. But I also think the type of person who's, who's going to maybe respond positively to that was probably going, you know, was not going to vote for Kathy Hochul in the first place. So I don't know if it sways anybody necessarily. They, they may matter in a primary though. And, and look, we have all these studies showing uh, a new one out this week, which I think is the, the third significant one that, that natural immunity confers more benefits than, than, than the vaccine shots. I'm, I'm triple vaxxed. I, I wear masks when I go inside. I try to be like, like real fastidious uh, with myself and hope that other people do the same. But I do think that there are a, a fair number of people who are very skeptical of, of the, the, the scientific establishment, such as it is, and it's moved around all the time. And Adams, of course, just got rid of the masking mandate for, for little kids who uh, I, I think some of them are going to show up in in this Republican primary and potentially be uh, be significant there. Um, just Andrew Giuliani, like my God, uh, Trump's golf partner. That that's his main qualification. He talks about, oh, I, I know how to run the state because I saw my dad do some of this back when he ran the city. Like like this is just a referendum on Hochul, but like my God, what a uh, what a clown show. Ugh. Well, he reminds me of Meghan McCain, where, you know, every other word out of his mouth is my father, my father, my father, right? <laughs> like, it's like, what are your qualifications? Like, well, my father. I was like, I didn't ask you about your father, because your father has also shown that he's been a colossal failure these last, well, I mean, Black folks already knew it when he was mayor, but he's definitely shown the world now um, that he's just wholly, he's out to lunch. I mean, I don't know, cognitively, Rudy Giuliani needs to sit down. I mean, he should have been disbarred a long time ago. Um, so... I mean, if if Hochul loses to any of the clowns that we saw last week in the Republican uh, debate, I think that says a lot about her campaign. I think it says a lot about New York State, which I've always said is purple, leaning red. And, you know, I like pray for this democracy moving forward. On that note. <laughs> no, wait, I always make my students end on a positive note. Whenever we talk about heavy things in class, you know, I teach intro to politics every semester. And, you know, it's like doom and gloom. We have to end on a positive note. It's it's something about, it's just, it's just a thing I have. Okay, what's going great in the city? I rode a city bike yesterday from one of those e-bikes because sometimes, sometimes you need a little help. <laughs> and I rode it from the Brooklyn Navy Yard to downtown Brooklyn, to Atlantic Avenue. And it was so beautiful and pleasant. And I saw a future engagement getting set up along the water. Um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't, all the docks were full, so I had to bike around for a bit. But I was like, it was one of those, like, I love New York moments. And you know, for me to be putting a little shine on Brooklyn takes a lot, but I have to, <laughs> it's personal growth. It was beautiful. It was great. So there you go. That's positive. So the people always make New York the best. People were out and about, eating, yeah. drinking, proposing, you know, having picnics. It was great. So I went to Brighton Beach. That's my positive. I went to Brighton Beach and I was like, this city is pretty spectacular. The beach was clean. You know, I like to, I like to be at beaches that aren't like the cool beach, you know, like I, I like Reese, you know, I know Katie, you're, you're cool on Reese, but I like Reese because they have that topless section that is just <laughs> awesome. But the Brighton Beach is just like, I'm with the old folks. 
Nobody's bothering anyone. No one's playing their music too loudly. It's just great. Harry, what about you? Strawberry Moon. Strawberry Moon. Ooh, the Strawberry Moon. <laughs> Thank you. Um, beautiful people. Gorgeous weather. Uh, niceness and decency everywhere. You know, I get cranky about things sometimes, but listening to to these candidates talk about the uh, dystopian hellscape here just reminded me of how lovely the city is, how lovely so many of the people are, and what a pleasure it is to uh, 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 to live here and to be a little part of it. I just came from my, my younger daughter's uh, end of year presentation, Ooh. which was was it like awesome. a step up ceremony? No, this was they 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 did a museum in New York. Um, my daughter did the Staten Island Ferry, which I now know can hold 4,500 people on one what? ride, among many other facts. Uh, there was a Chrysler building, a Statue of Liberty. There was at least a slight step better than what the uh, the AI drawing machines can do right now. <laughs> um, uh, Bronx Zoo. It's just, uh, you know, this place is a treasure. It's wonderful to be here. Go find something cool that you've been meaning to do for a while and like go out and do it and, and just soak it in and enjoy well, you know what I I always tell people, and I think this is really helpful for me. When I first moved back to New York City, because you know Katie's our Queens girl, you're our, you're a Brooklyn boy, and I lived in Manhattan for 20 years, and and now I'm in Brooklyn, but I was born in Queens, so I feel like I've got the little trifecta. Because when I first moved back to the city after college, I was a fellow where I made $300 a month, and then in grad school I made $15,000 a year. That was before I paid my rent. So I know how to do New York basically for free. So when people come, especially with families, and they're like, well, what do we want to do? The city's so expensive. It's like, you know, there are a lot of beautiful things. I mean, to say nothing of the parks, I know that Eric Adams isn't funding the parks department the way he could or should, but, you know, we've got these beautiful parks. We have a a zoo in every borough, even though those are not cheap. Yes, they have the once a month where, you know, families can go and it's, it's a madhouse. But there are a lot of beautiful parkways and promenades that you can enjoy throughout the city. So hopefully our listeners will just take advantage of just being around this city. And there are a lot of institutions, cultural institutions, that do have once a month free days or free evenings that you can take advantage of and, and sort of get sort of the best of New York. I'm glad we're ending on a positive note. You got to spread joy. Up to the maximum, bring gloom down to the minimum and have faith or pandemonium. FAQ. FAQ.NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics, online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and came to you this week from Brooklyn and Queens. A special thank you to our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara, who mixed and edited this episode. Be cool, be kind, be well, and go check out New York City. We'll see you next week.